You are listening to The Emulsion Podcast, a show that informs and inspires the restaurant industry to work, live, and create better. My name is Justin Kana. I'm a chef and media producer with almost 10 years of experience in award-winning restaurants all over the world. I created this show as a way to give back, to inspire the next generation, and help you progress your career. The Emulsion Podcast is sponsored by you folks, and Patreon is where that happens. If you're here as a return listener and enjoyed the episode you just came from and happen to want to support more episodes, visit patreon.com slash Justin Kana. I'd really appreciate it if you can. I totally understand if you can't. Free ways you can support this show include leaving a like or comment on this episode, filling up all five stars on iTunes so more people can find us, or simply sharing an episode with a friend. This is a solo episode. That's right, it's just you and me. I'll be dishing up a curated list of articles, happenings, and headlines that I've been paying attention to over the past few days, and then season them with my perspective and opinion on these industry stories. If you want to go deeper, full show notes are available on justinkana.com slash podcast. If you come across a story you'd like me to talk about, shoot it to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find it. Let's get ready to welcome your host for this episode, Justin Kana. Okie dokie. What is up, folks? My name is Justin Kana. This is episode 83 of the emulsion podcast, the second recording of this podcast. And I apologize that this has taken so long to get out. I was like so ready to sit down during the holiday time and edit this. I had all the screenshots saved and all the links for the show notes ready to go and the video and audio was ready to go. And I sit down to record it, uh, to edit it. And the first few like bits and bobs were like, had this weird hum in the background. And I was like, uh oh, this audio is not good. Something happened with my uh, audio input jack on my camera. And then I fast forward a little bit into the podcast and everything is like super crispy as it should be, like super normal. And I was like, okay, so maybe it's fine. Maybe I can go fix it. And then I continue listening into the episode and then it starts happening again. And I started, the beauty of this is that this is plugged into the camera. My microphone is getting plugged into my camera via a really long cable. And so I could try to see through the footage if there was any times where I like bumped it or if like some sort of mic jack uh, thing on the mic was happening and I couldn't find anything. I was like, what is happening? So That explains the headphones for everybody that's watching why I'm wearing headphones to monitor, which I should have as a habit already as a solo production guy. I should kind of know to keep track of my audio levels, Uh, but the the camera and this mic just makes it so easy. That's why I love using these to just kind of set it and forget it. As long as like I can stay relatively close to this microphone, it should be fine, but This is going to be a reshoot. We are not Instagram live on this one. This is only going to be shown on YouTube because everybody that should have watched on Instagram already watched last week. So this is going to be a little bit late and then I'm going to kind of bust my ass to get the uh, next interview podcast published this week as well. So stay tuned for that. And the edit on this should be super fast. You should have this uh, within the next couple of hours. So without further ado, let's start uh, with some headlines. Also a subject of last episode's solo episode's headline, Scandinavian food blogger Anders Husa announced that he will take on the role of Norwegian chairman for a new food guide. It is called the 360-degree eat guide, and its goal is to rank restaurants on more than just food and drink. They've brought on partners like the WWF, the World Wildlife Foundation, as well as KRAV, CRAV, which is a Swedish organization centered around ecologically sustainable agriculture, all with the intent on making sure that the environment is taken into consideration with all the hype that these restaurants are getting already. So the piece saying, quote, the gastronomy will always be number one during a restaurant visit. The food needs to be excellent, but it's also time we all started to evaluate how the restaurant works with sustainability issues, end quote. 
I will be very excited to see where this goes. As I've mentioned before on the show, I think it's really great to bring kind of a ranking system into it because these top restaurants can fanatically get obsessed with where they are on the list and tweaking how they run their business to kind of get points in the sustainability category is kind of a weird reverse psychology thing to apply to these chefs and these restaurants to maneuver them to make it a win-win scenario all the, all the way around. So the restaurant wins, the guest wins, and then hopefully if this guide does well, they win as well. Vox published a piece called, quote, Why Ramen is So Valuable in Prison, end quote. And I think currency jokes and living off of ramen jokes aside, there was a nugget in there where about halfway through the short five-minute video, they start talking about how truly bad the prison food system is. And most people not even being able to get their daily dose of straight calories, not to mention factoring nutrition into that. So it's not just that they're not getting enough food, period, but it's not very nutritious food. And with organizations like Brigade, which we've talked about on the show before, tackling things like school lunches, I really think that there's a problem here that's begging to be solved. And I would love to put this on your radar if, you know, maybe that can be your calling. Maybe you're just going to be the difference maker through food that affects these uh, millions of people that are in need of, of some help. So just food for thought there. I know it was one of my biggest takeaways on episode 82 with Mareko Mamasi of having a problem to solve, having a reason to get up out of bed in the morning is very, very powerful. Tom Sitsema of the Washington Post published his review of Reverie, a D.C.-based restaurant from chef Johnny Spiro, who has a pretty full plate right now. In addition to being a new dad competing on Netflix's The Final Table, which I still haven't watched yet, if you've watched it and you enjoy it, please let me know, and being nominated for Sexiest Chef Alive through People Magazine, he's also got a new restaurant, and Reverie is the name of it. So the review itself isn't anything amazing. If anything, it fits the bill of that style of restaurant that we're seeing a lot of lately. So it's a ambitious chef trained under some really big names. It's heavily Nordic and Japanese uh, influenced, but it's also it also still serves a burger. Uh, I think we know a couple of other restaurants like that. It shined through as the critics' biggest takeaway, the burger itself, saying, quote, Sparrow says the definition of the word reverie is the feeling he wants to impart to his latest restaurant. Daydreaming has its place. So does focus. More, please. End quote. Ivan Orkin, star of Chef's Table, as well as owner of Ivan Ramen, has announced that he has plans to open 100 new restaurants in the next five years as part of a ramen franchising business model. So how does this even happen, you ask? He's partnered with Corlex Capital, and in, in addition to them footing this massive bill, they've also got a track record like... Um, working with people like Guy Fieri and Arby's and Le Pen de Coten and Red Farm and Scarpetta. So they've, they, they have a proven track record. And so I don't think it makes sense. I, I think it makes sense for him to go with someone who can provide him all of these resources and he can focus on what he does best. So from the rest of the article, from what I read, he's really not fucking around here. He wants this to be bigger than sushi itself is in the States, which is pretty crazy to say. Um, but he's had this plan from the beginning, and for everyone that says he's a sellout, Orkin says, quote, I've been in the restaurant business for many, many years, and I think the secret to a restaurant's success is consistency. And the only way to have consistency is to standardize everything. I'm a craftsperson, an artisan. I'm a very serious cook, but if your food doesn't taste the same every time, you lose customers. It's a crushing feeling when you go back to a dish you fell in love with, and it's not the same. I don't care if you open three or 300 or 3,000. Successful restaurants all have systems, End quote. What are your thoughts on that quote? To I, I would I would love for you to sound off in the comments or tweet at me. Uh, I, I I'm I'm always interested to hear what you think of if you're like purely I am an artist I. 
uh, I just cook. I don't write down any recipes. I cook based on how I'm feeling and what the ingredients are, are, are saying to me based on, you know, everything needs to be systemized and standardized and anybody needs to be able to walk in and do it. And the customer needs to have the same experience every single time. Um, I would love to know your thoughts. So please leave them down low in the comments. That has been your daily dose of headlines. Let's get into the meat of it all. But first, today's beverage. Um, this is also uh, really weird that I'm drinking this now. This is t this morning's coffee. So I made this at like 6 in the morning. It's currently 3 in the afternoon. Uh, I left to go get some work done, and I forgot this at home. So I just popped the thermos off. It's still pretty much a little warmer than room temperature, which is pretty cool. Um, but this is a Ethiopian coffee, my favorite, the one I make every single morning. Okay, so shout out to Eddie Y, Casey ML, and Crystal M, all new patrons on Patreon this month. Thank you so much for your support. And of course, massive thanks to everyone that continues to support the show and keep it free and ad-free and sustainable. So for those of you that have been sending me messages about the mentor tier... As far as I know, there is still one slot that just became available. It is going to continue to kind of fluctuate like that from month to month, I'm fairly certain. There's no harm, no foul on anyone that ever needs to edit their pledge. I know myself that money comes and goes, and I mean it when I say that even just a like on the video and the $50 a month that the mentor people pay, it means the same to me. I'm insanely grateful for every single interaction that you have with my stuff. But when it comes time to make the content better, the financials make a lot of that possible. So if you're a fan of my stuff, if you get excited when I publish any of my free-to-consume content, if you'd like to be a part of growing what this is, it's, of course, linked up down below at patreon.com slash justinkana, and that's where you can learn more about that. First up, industry, industry style, I want to talk about this really interesting Kickstarter I saw for this restaurant called Mago that was launched by Chef Mark Lieberman. Its tagline is, quote, sustainable food coming to Oakland, end quote. And just with just about, uh, I want to say like two weeks left of their... Um, Kickstarter, they're just around that $5,000 of their $25,000 goal. And let's see, Mago Kickstarter. I pulled this up when I was researching the article first, and that was right like two or three days after. Yep, they're still at $5,557 of their $25,000 goal. So I did some research on this project, and I am fascinated with this entire story. So the guy opened this restaurant called AQ in San Francisco. He's a graduate of the CIA. He wants to open a farm-to-table cooking-over-fire spot in the neighborhood that he's passionate about. He wants to change the menu every single week. He's hoping hosting pop-ups right now. I get all of that. But what I'm struggling to wrap my head around is the execution of the whole Kickstarter thing. Like, why do a Kickstarter in the first place? It sounds to me, from everything that they have posted, that this restaurant is going to be open regardless, right? Like, your donations will help do things like build an outdoor terrace and buy pottery and essentially help finite finance these smaller details that will make either an aesthetic or logistical differences in the restaurant. So pledges themselves for the Kickstarter go from five to $5 to $10,000, where that highest tier means that you can buy out the entire 45-seat restaurant for the night. And I, I guess my continued question in reading this was, why aren't they more funded? Why is it only, why, right when it launched, it got about $4,000, and then it, literally within like the 10 days or so that I've shot this, and I'm reshooting it, it's only been able to get about $1,500 more funded into this project. And 
I think part of the problem is the chef's personality. I don't think Mark Lieberman is a be-in-front-of-the-camera kind of chef. And the Kickstarter video itself seemed very scripted, although it was very well done. Like, the person who shot it did did a very good job. Uh, But it just didn't seem like he had the presence that you need in a Kickstarter video when you're asking for people's money. And I get it. I was cheesy as fuck, too, when I started on video. It's really not easy. But what I wanted to learn from this and give it as a takeaway to you is the idea of the other 50 50%. And you might be asking, what is that? What's the other 50%? And that's a great question because uh, I didn't know what it was either, but there's this guy named Chase Jarvis. He's a Seattle-based photographer. He's got this company called Creative Live, multi-million dollars worth of funding. But his advice to creatives in general is great. You've made the thing. You put it out. You you, you launch your Shopify site. It's available for, for purchase. You share it, right? That is literally 50% of the game. You're only halfway there. And I'm going to let that sink in for a second because it's very important. And some of you that grew up with that, you know, kind of if you build it, they will come mentality might be like, what? But it's so true. And I think this is a beautiful case study of that, right? Like regardless of how much this guy might care about the community and regardless of how badly he wants this restaurant, I think based on what I can straight see on the Kickstarter, the community isn't there yet. He hasn't put in the work of getting involved with the people who support him. And I did some research between his Twitter and his Instagram. He's not posting enough for the kind of support that he's asking for. Um, some of the perks are, are good and I understand them, but I mean like $75 gets you a private tour of the kitchen, which you could probably get if you just asked at the end of your meal. And I know it's not, it's like, it's, it's about feeling like you're part of the project. I get that. But I, I think there's a myriad of factors that make this not that enticing to me as a supporter of the project. And yes, it's what you love. It's exciting to open a restaurant and it sounds great to have a neighborhood spot, but I look at any other successful Kickstarter campaign. I think of Peak Design, arguably the most successful Kickstarter-focused business ever. Millions of dollars every single time they launch something. And they've got videos galore and behind-the-scenes action and photos. And they do late-night live streams to answer people's questions. And they do Instagram-sponsored posts. And they have influencers lined up to give shout-outs. And they have a target audience in mind. I think about a piece of advice a friend of mine shared to me. He said something along the lines of, you don't launch a Kickstarter and then build an audience. You build an audience and then you get them like chomping at the bit for your Kickstarter to launch. And then you ask for that support in return. And yes, I don't think I personally don't think that I could get a $25,000 Kickstarter uh, campaign funded. But that's the point, right? Like even with one video a week and a a weekly podcast and an audience through my own pop-ups, I don't think I could get it done. And so it's no wonder that this project is only like, what is it, 18% funded or whatever, whatever it is. And of course, there's still like two weeks to go, and I want to put it on your radar if you're in the area and you want to either help or or donate yourself if it's like in your hood and you 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 want to go and be able to hang out. That's awesome, but. I, I, I want to make sure that you're taking those baby steps and staying focused on your execution if this is the path that you want to go. Because years ago, a Kickstarter wasn't even something that you would think about with a restaurant. But I get multiple messages a week of people that want my apron to be a thing, right? Like, that's the place you should be in when you're getting ready to start thinking about a Kickstarter, right? Like, not something... I, I just feel like this is a weird roundtable discussion. Like, hey, we're $25,000 short. Should we just do a Kickstarter? And as always, that's just my opinion. I wanted to dissect it and give you something to think about. If you have any thoughts, please share them. I I always want this to be a dialogue. I would love to get into it with you folks in the comments down below. 
It's that time of year again. Bill Addison has released his annual list of Eater's 38 essential restaurants here in the U.S., compiled after 34 weeks of travel and almost 600 meals in 36 cities. And before we get into the list, I want to remind everyone the lens by which Addison curates this list, and that is with the word essential. Quote, which places become indispensable to their neighborhoods and eventually to their towns and whole regions? Which ones spur trends or set standards for hospitality and leadership or stir conversations around representation and inclusivity? Which restaurants ultimately become vital to how we understand ourselves and others at the table? End quote. And this year, there are 17 new restaurants to the list. Five of them have the, uh, what do they call it? It's like a super special list. They put a star next to all of them where they've been on the list for five years or longer. So five of the 38 now have that title. So I'm going to read the 23 uh, new plus the five right here. So 2M Smokehouse, San Antonio, um, Atelier Kren in San Francisco, Brennan's in New Orleans, Here's Looking at You in LA, Himalaya in Houston, Jose Enrique in Puerto Rico, June Baby right here in Seattle, Koi Place in Daly City, California, Mary and Tito's Cafe in Albuquerque, Momofuku Co. in Manhattan, Palace Diner in Maine, Parks Barbecue in LA, Smith and the Loyalist in Chicago, Superiority Burger in New York, Via Corota in New York. Which Addison does say is his favorite place to eat in New York. Gian's Famous Foods in New York, Zochi in Houston, and now I'm going to go to the five. Oh, they call them icons. That's what I missed. So, Bennu, Zahav, Blue Hill at Stone Barns, Franklin's Barbecue, and Prince's Hot Chicken are those five restaurants that have been on the list for five years or longer. So massive congrats to those places that are recognized. The full list is, of course, linked up in the show notes or on justincona.com slash podcast. But I respect Bill Addison as a critic a lot. I think he's genuinely psyched about the current state of food here in the U.S. And he's very well eaten across the spectrum. And I can provide and I think he can provide some insightful value regardless of the cuisine or the price point. I think that as so much of this list is a snapshot of kind of where we're at in 2018. And it's definitely... Um, it drives attention to Eater. Publishing this list, as with most lists that people publish at these big media companies or or corporations, I genuinely, I but like it, it's all to drive traffic. But I do genuinely believe that you can use this as a utility when you travel to a city. So take for example, I went to Atlanta in January. I ate all at a lot of those spots in uh, those three days that I was there. But Staple House, I had a meal there. It's on this uh, essential restaurants list. The these thirty eight, and it was my most memorable meal. So if you go to San Francisco, I do agree with Bill that you should go eat at Bennu. Does that mean that I don't think you should go eat at Cezanne because it's not on this list? I don't think so, but I, I I don't think that you would have a bad meal if you stuck to this list when you're traversing the U.S. if you're going on any sort of road trip. I think it would give you a good uh, sense of where the city is at if you uh, have a meal at any one of these places. Did he make a mistake? Were restaurants missing from this list? Are some of them too hyped up? Uh, let me know. I don't nearly put in the number of miles that Bill does every year, so I would love to know your thoughts, If you, especially if you live in cities where these restaurants are at or even if you work at some of them. Uh, let me know your, your your thoughts and if, if getting on the list has affected working at the restaurant and the amount of traffic at all. So next up, a very nerdy deep dive for some of you. If you're into one of three things, startups and tech, Nick Kikonis and the guys over at Talk, or the restaurant reservations ecosystem in general. So Nick Kikonis, of course, is very active on Medium. He wrote a piece called, quote, the restaurant reservations game is about to finally get wild, end quote. And amongst his typical peacocking of breaking down the other restaurant reservation services like Resi and Open Table and comparing them to Talk, which 
I call peacocking, but I genuinely enjoy reading about it because he's like me. He's willing to do the research in people's lazy writing and fact distribution and say, hey, I looked at your research on what you presented and it's not really correct. Or do things like say, your business model is genuinely stupid, (laughs) right? So I enjoy reading Nick's writing because it also comes through that he cares more about this space than the 99.999% of people out there. He is a outlier and he he is very keen to get obsessed with things. And so he deserves to build a successful reservation system, at least I think. So what what did I find uh, necessary was his admission to use the word tickets. I, I thought that was very interesting that he admitted that he was wrong not wrong but he was like it wasn't the best choice for me to say tickets when I first started talk and how to book things through them now is how he's laying out his roadmap for 2019 which he does in the article and he I respect the hell out of that kind of transparency he says quote Serving that up on a cloud-based platform is absolutely necessary. Offering robust digital connections to social media, search, and payments unlocks the real network of diners. It doesn't need to be built or rebranded. It already exists. Restaurants need tools that are as flexible and powerful as the emotional connections to the world of cuisine that they provide, end quote. And so the points that he covers that they're going to plan for 2019, one of them being, quote, when supply exceeds demand, reservations should be free. When demand exceeds supply, restaurants should require a small deposit to reduce no-shows and food waste. When demand is insane, and then in parentheses it says rare, restaurants should require prepayment to completely eliminate no-shows and further improve operations. We built Talk to be the only system to offer all three reservation types side by side while treating every day of the year as a unique opportunity to get this mix correct. End quote. And so in addition to also partnering with Chase, um, they are offering diner-generated profiles and even five-minute onboardings to say if someone like me would want to use Talk as a service to have people book seats for my pop-ups. And I think another interesting thing that they said was that you could do it just on a one-event basis. So if any of you are like, well... I don't really do pop-ups that often, so I don't want to pay monthly. You can use Talk going forward in 2019 just for one single event, which is pretty cool. And it's a fascinating read if you're into things like this. I know for me, I'm torn a little bit based on control. I would be willing to use Talk if I was able to grow something like my email list at the same time. I would certainly pay for Talk service based on their growing audience size. Their email list is probably massive themselves right now. And with having access to something like Chase and their Diners Club or whatever they call it through the Sapphire card... um, I think it's a really, really good opportunity. I don't necessarily think it's the best decision right out the gate based on the services that they offer. Um, I'm completely comfortable using my Squarespace site to sell tickets as needed. And even if a service like Eventbrite works really, really well, if you want a nearly free way to market your events, I, I think, at least from my perspective, a few hours in learning how to do Facebook ads partnered with Eventbrite, and if you can get your event shared in the right groups in wherever you're located, you can have much more success. I would rather you put that money into Facebook and Instagram ads through Eventbrite because Facebook loves Eventbrite. The algorithm just really enjoys it. So um, I would much rather, if you're in the pop-up space or you're wanting to do something like that, I think your money is better spent there until you get into a regular cadence where you can see that you can bring talk on full-time. Um, I don't think that as a solo pop-up post you should invest in something like talk, but what it is doing is serving as a really inspiring example of scratching your own itch and then scaling that to provide a lot of value to a genuinely broken system. And I love following along with it. If you want the backstory on this, I know I recommended it already, but Nick has a great interview on Tim 
Tim Ferriss's podcast that is worth your time for sure. Next up, I wanted to talk about this article that Eater published called How Chefs with Food Allergies Make It Work. Quote, as restaurants with as restaurants become more accommodating of diners' dietary restrictions, chefs are still navigating how to stay safe in the kitchen, end quote. And it does a really good job of documenting these stories of people that have these really debilitating allergies for the kitchen. So gluten, nuts, seafood, alliums, and doing, uh, like, basically sharing how they can really cause problems in the kitchen environment. So some, they give examples of this one place that basically created a gluten-free bubble where this lady could go and, and guarantee that there was going to be no gluten in anything. Um, an example of people refusing to order products that might have been processed with nuts. And if you've read the back of any sort of ingredients label lately, that's kind of hard to find. Uh, an example of eating a piece of fish and then spitting it out and popping a Benadryl to kind of like calm down what your body's reaction to that food was. And even figuring out how to teach culinary school students how to butcher fish that have an allergy are all part of this deep dive. And while I don't think it's necessarily... Uh, the best example of providing a concrete solution, I think that it definitely shines a light on this thing that's a problem, and it's larger than just a few outliers. Fun fact, I'm not allergic to anything. I know that these things change. I'm genuinely curious to kind of get a 23andMe test to see if and when I might build up to something like a gluten intolerance, but overall, if you want to hear my thoughts on food allergies, I have an entire video on that. Just search Justin Kana food allergies. I'm sure it'll pop up, but I think about this. I think about it like this. I went to school with a lot of kids who never had eaten fish before, and I had this one instructor in culinary school who would always go on this rant, like, these stinking kids pay all this money to go to culinary school, and they never try fish. They aren't, they never eat lamb, which I totally agree with, right? I think that in order to have that empathy that's so required to hand someone a plate or a bowl of food, you have to know exactly what it is that you're serving. What are you going for? And I personally don't think that you can serve someone salmon without going through the whole spectrum of what salmon tastes like in all its different preparations. So I think you should taste it cured and smoked and eat it raw and grill it with the skin on and poach it in tarragon oil and baste it in butter and squeeze a little bit of tamari on it. And once you've eaten salmon in all of those ways... I think you can then prepare it in a way that is thoughtful. But what happens if you're allergic to fish, right? The article gives a great example of Jessica Largry, where literally the desire to work the fish line was more powerful than her allergy, and she was able to get past that and work in the seafood restaurant. And it's just insane what motivation can do to a person. But what I hopefully want to give you as a takeaway from the story is to not judge yourself uh, or someone else's skill as a cook based on their genetic or biological inhibitions with certain ingredients. There's this saying that, like, never trust a skinny chef, right, which I wholeheartedly disagree with. I personally think that not just based on the body composition of chefs in 2018, but also the philosophy behind that silly phrase, chefs should be eating better than anyone. We know more about food than the 99%, right? And I think that it's important to disconnect the individual from the work sometimes. And in the same way that I wouldn't look at a skinny chef and say her food probably isn't that good, I wouldn't look at a chef that can't eat fish and say, well, her fish probably isn't that good. Um, I did work with this guy, though. Funny story. Once upon a time, he was a vegetarian and he was horrible at evaluating protein when he would taste it. He would like chew it and then spit it out. And all those tiny tastes, I think, over time never gave him the insight of what it feels like to sit down to a whole steak or a really skillfully prepared piece of fish. And it was always this little like microdosing that never gave him the full effect. So I, 
Overall, don't make people feel bad about having their food allergies. If you have one, of course, be safe. But also see what you can do to give yourselves that empathy for what it feels like to have something in that category at a really high level. And when I say that, I, I, I'm i trying to say don't waste your time going into anaphylactic shock in tasting filet of fish sandwiches if you're allergic to fish. I think you should go stage at a sushi restaurant and learn what it takes to prepare fish in a really technically sound way and use that knowledge to further your career and what during that process is ask those questions of like how do you know when it's done or how do you like what are you looking for during this process because um a lot of times that very tactical uh laser beam focused learning can be more valuable than tasting uh anything in the world or you can just stay away from fish it's truly up to you i'm neutral you do you I want to dive into two quick business pieces before we go into direct answer, one of them being from Matthew Jennings, a chef and restaurateur who announced on Twitter last week, I guess it would be two weeks ago, that he would be launching Full Heart Hospitality, which is a consultancy firm that provides services to businesses that include brand strategy, operational excellence, product and marketing innovation, financial management, and more. And while I'm all for this, I'm excited to see how things play out for them because in my heart of hearts, no pun intended. I know there are thousands of restaurants that need this. I don't think anyone is arguing that. But what is going to be interesting is to see how the business model integrates because he's technically a B2B business, a business to business, whereas a restaurant is selling to consumers B2C, he is a B2B business. So how they survive financially, I think, depends on the execution of this incredibly necessary project. Restaurants themselves, based on like uh, my experience in restaurants and the people that I'm still talking to in the industry, uh, they can barely afford a social media manager or a locker room for the staff to change in or healthcare, right? Like so many of these other basic boxes are still left unchecked. And I don't know where this lands on many business owners' list of priorities when they talk about where they're going to spend their investors' money for the next quarter or two, right? I, of course, want it to be successful, but I'm going to be following along as it grows and develops. He's also one of my new favorite follows on Twitter, Matt Jennings. He posts a lot of really thoughtful things about the industry. A site called 25IQ, and this gentleman named Tren Griffin, published a piece called A Dozen Lessons About Business from Anthony Bourdain. And in addition to showing why he was so loved across different industries, the article breaks down a lot of Bourdain's best quotes and translates them to how they apply to tech or startups or professional success in general. And I wanted to share a few of those quotes here. Quote, luck is not a business model. If anything is good for pounding humility into permanently, it's a restaurant business. Uh, another quote, quote, I urge you to travel as far and as widely as possible. Sleep on floors if you have to. Find out how other people live and eat and cook. Learn from them wherever you go, end quote. Quote, for me, the business model is the same business model I have had in all my enterprises. If you produce really good content, someone will buy it. You don't have to talk down to people. You don't have to use television voice. You don't have to dumb stuff down. You don't even have to create stuff that makes you feel bad when you look at yourself in the morning. End quote. If you want to read the other nine quotes and see how they translate to business, it is linked up down below. And then the author also links out to other articles that he has, of course, written on topics like profit margins and giving back and so much more. He's also a really good follow on Twitter if you're into startups and angel investing and VCs and all of that. I know that it's not everybody's cup of tea. But I know that there's a couple of people who are deep in the industry that really respect Trent Griffin. So I thought it was cool for him to give a little tip of the hat to Anthony Bourdain there. 
Last up, industry style, we have direct answer. You folks send me a DM, and with your permission, I like to answer it in a way that might help the greater good. This question comes from Chef underscore Crisby on Instagram. He asks, hey, Justin, recently just did my first catering slash pop-up event, and it went really well. So well, in fact, that it looks like I will have the opportunity to do more very soon in the future. What advice would you give to trying to spread your brand out there through these kinds of events, and what's the best way to try and standardize the formula for doing multiple pop-ups in a short period of time? And before I answer, I know I always pitch the coaching calls at the end of this part, the direct answer part, but this is genuinely one of those questions that justifies a coaching call. I would hate to answer this question and give advice without knowing what uh, Chris's, uh, Chef Crisby's ambitions are with the pop-up events. I never pursued advice uh, from this chef in Seattle that's opening a restaurant because I don't want a restaurant, right? So uh, advice on pop-ups from his experience might even hurt me. So I think that if you're bringing in revenue through pop-ups, if you're wanting to get a new job at a more ambitious or higher paying restaurant or deciding if culinary school is right for you or not, all these things that require money that you're already paying money for, I would love to help however I can because I've been through a lot of those experiences myself. And if you want to save on your first one, I would love for you to enter code end of the show on justinconnacom slash coaching and hopefully we'll talk soon. So on to my answer. Because I don't have context, I want to share what I've learned and what I've observed in the pop-up space. I think Two kinds of pop-ups are successful. The constantly changing, every single one of them is its own entity kind of pop-up. So one event is focused on highlighting tomatoes, and the next one is a Polynesian full table spread. And the next one is all about you made all the noodles for your own ramen. Like you need in, in, in that case, you need to be branding the people or the logo. People need to be stoked that John Smith is cooking because, oh my goodness, that wood-fired pizza pop-up he did last month was amazing. So this lobster boil one that he's doing next weekend should be just as tasty. And I'm excited to see what he does with that idea, blah, 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 blah. So the other route is to be consistent as fuck and find a unique way to surprise and delight your devoted fans as they start to come to pop-up after pop-up. The one that comes to mind is my friend Me Kim with her donuts. She literally just does four to five different kinds of donuts. It's the same dough, but every single pop-up was a different set of flavors, and that made it so that regardless of if it's your first time or your fifth time going to her pop-ups, you're wanting to get in line for that pop-up. Speaking of lines, generating some generating some sort of exclusivity is the dark horse of pop-ups. And if that means starting small at just like four people and you know that that's going to sell out, then you double it next time. And then you double it again until you get to a capacity where you're happy with it. And as much as we might agonize over logistics and planning and creativity and product and marketing, our pop-up might be only 45 minutes of someone's day. So you need to give them something to hang their hat on. You can't tell... you. you you need to be able to tell their story in those three sentences. Me Kim's donuts were super easy to sell because anyone could say, hey, I'm going to this donut pop-up. And then the person says, like, play this out in your head. One person says, hey, I'm going to this donut pop-up. And then you say, what's that? Uh, your response for Me Kim's event would be Saturday morning, donuts, fun Asian flavors. It's going to sell out in 40 minutes right? What are those four bullet points for your pop-up? And if at least three of those satisfy any one of those basic human and social desires, so exclusivity, luxury, intimacy, connection, deliciousness, entertainment, any one of those, if if you can hit the nail on the head with at least three of four of those, I think the only other thing I'd be worried about is that other 50% thing that we talked about earlier. 
That's the idea that once you create the menu and you launch the site and your tickets are ready to go, you need to then do that hard legwork of reaching out to local publications and Instagram influencers, and you need to hire some nerd friend of yours to do Facebook ads, and you need to go to other chefs pop-ups and introduce yourself. It's all part of the game. And that's not even getting into the scheduling of pop-ups back-to-back or talking with investors or beverage partners or creating venue relationships or hiring an event manager. It's all stuff that I'm still learning too, but it's a really fascinating topic time to be a restaurant less chef and I hope that I brought you some value in my answer. Hit me up if there's anything else I can do for you. In our non-industry story this week, I have two videos that I want to share that I watched this week. One of them is with John Mayer and Jerry Lorenzo. It's through Complex and it talks all about a lot of really fascinating topics like creativity and giving up alcohol and still being on your A-game and partnering with Nike and so much more. If you're into street culture or just being an artist in 2018, I think it's really, really valuable. And the second one, I just selfishly consumed because I'm interested in getting ahead of this incredibly fast-moving ball that is AI and machine learning. It's from a 3D world designer. So he like, he makes CGI environments in video games and movies. And he talks about how how computers can help humans, not necessarily replace them. And it does show some pretty incredible examples of how technology can help. And I'm really stoked to see how this applies to food. As much as people love to fear monger about job loss and I, all that stuff, I think that folks like you or I who are stoked about constantly improving ourselves will use this tech to our advantage to be even more productive and creative instead of being replaced. Because as I've said before, someone has to teach the robots how to cook. And are you really that excited about standing over that bowl and whisking that sauce for 45 minutes a day? Do you really love measuring out pastry recipes? Maybe you do. I'm not judging. But I think that it's awesome that soon we will have the choice to say, my automated kitchen preps for me from 1 a.m. to 11 a.m. And I come in at noon and half the prep is already meased out. Right? And now I have more time to talk with the guests or teach my staff certain things and mentor them. Or hey, maybe go to the gym or spend time with your kids or go on a hike with your dog. Right. Regardless, both of those videos are linked up for you to roll right into after you're done here. So that'll do it for this week's show, episode 83. As per usual, if you have stories you want me to cover in two weeks, shoot them to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find them. I know I say it in the outro, but if you decide this week is going to be the week that you're going to support on Patreon, thank you so much in advance. Roll the outro. Thanks for listening to the Emulsion Podcast. I appreciate your ears more than you know. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help sponsor the show, head on over to patreon.com slash justinkana. Other ways you can help out right now include giving this show a review on iTunes so more people can find it. I also love seeing you folks liking and commenting on the video if you listen that way, or even just share this episode with a friend. Now is normally why I would tell you that my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to, so I'm just going to get out of the out of the way here excuse excuse me <laughs>